to Pontifex. I'm Bri. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And today, we're not ranking because we've hit the church's fourth ecumenical council, and it's a big one. So this is the Council of Chalcedon 451. Are you ready for this? You know, church politics is not real exciting. No, not necessarily, not in its actual, like, play-by-play, but It's one of those things that in order to understand what these people are fighting about, we totally have to dig into it. This is one of the church's most formative and important ecumenical councils that causes, like, such ramifications. So, and it's going to kind of wrap up our exploration of the early Catholic Church on a pretty resounding note. So it's one of those ones we really, really can't ignore. Oh yeah, we're going to be almost to the Middle Ages here. Yeah, generally the identification for where the Middle Ages starts is right around the time of Leo's papacy. There is an event that is coming that is kind of the hallmark to bookend the start of the medieval period and the end of the antiquity period coming very soon. So we're not going to call Leo our last early pope. But we're just about there. So, it's happening. It's coming soon. Now, before we get into this council, I should point out that if you're looking through our feeds, you will see a special council episode for the first ecumenical council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, and now one for the fourth, the Council of Chalcedon, but we did not do one for the second and the third. We've covered them. But neither of them were weighty enough to really give them their own episodes. So just for the sake of clarity, if you weren't sure where they were, the Second Ecumenical Council was the First Council of Constantinople in 381, which happened during the papacy of Pope Damasus. It condemned Apollinarianism and Macedonianism and confirmed an amended version of the Nicene Creed with the addition of, quote, And we believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, and who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So that was what came out of the second ecumenical council. Yell amen or deacon dad's going to do it for you. Amen. (laughs) (laughs) The third ecumenical council was the Council of Ephesus in 431 during the papacy of Pope Celestine I, which condemned Nestorianism as heresy and confirmed that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was indeed the Theotokos, God-bearer. So, funnily enough, the two councils that are not getting their own episode here are dealing with similar issues to Chalcedon. So, Christology is the question of the era, and that is why we are going to look at this council in so much detail. So we've been discussing the ongoing questions and debates on Christology already in our Popey episodes, but as it's the major issue at play here, and if you're going to listen to this council episode as a standalone for some reason... No shame. Yeah, no shame. No shame. By all means, listen to it that way. But if you are doing that, and you haven't listened to any of our 
Pope episodes around it. We're going to just go over the concepts and the major theological factions again so that everyone is on the same page. Christology, or the understanding of Christ, is the theological concept on the natures of Christ, i.e. his humanity and his divinity, and how those natures coexisted or absorbed or reconciled with one another. And how this question is answered has several implications. For example, Christ had to have a human nature for his suffering and sacrifice to be significant to human salvation, and yet he must obviously be divine, as orthodoxy dictated, to be the consubstantial and co-eternal son of God. This also had implications for Mary, like we've been talking about, depending on your theological viewpoint, as to whether she should be understood as Theotokos, the God-bearer, or simply Christokos, the bearer of the human Christ. So, here are some of the main theological sects that are in this Christological debate, in brief summary. We did a little bit of this in Leo's episode, just to set the whole thing up, but again, if you're listening to it as a standalone, here we go. Nesting dolls. Nesting dolls, yes, that's one of them. But first, Apollinarianism, from Apollinaris of Laodicea taught that Jesus had a normal human body, a divine mind, and a lower human soul that was liable to sin. This is one of the earlier theologies on Christ's natures, and it's the most difficult to narrow down into some sort of simplistic term because it argues for a position that's neither fully human, nor fully God, nor both. So this is the one where, when you say, is Christ a human? They go, no. Is Christ a god? They go, no. Is Christ both? They go, no. And then you say, so what is he? And they go, no. So <laughs> that's all they're ever going to give you. Apollinarianism was condemned as heresy in the Synod in Rome in 368, and again in 381 in the First Council of Constantinople. Nestorianism, our nesting dolls, is from Nestorius, the Bishop of Constantinople, and it was focused on affirming the two natures of Christ as two separate and independent persons, i.e. the human Christ and the God Christ, separate. These two natures are at best only loosely united, or at its most extreme, the two natures fractured the singularity of Christ. So that's a thing. This is also the viewpoint that directly challenged Mary's title of Theotokos, arguing that it denied Christ's human nature because Mary had given birth to the fully human Christ, and that's why he wants to call Mary Christokos instead. And Nestorianism was first condemned by the First Council of Ephesus in 431. Monophysitism was the precise opposite nesting doll Nestorianism and was the theological viewpoint that Nestorius radically disagreed with. Monophysitism is the belief that Jesus had one and only one nature as a purely divine being. There are many versions of monophysitism, like adoptionism, that argues that Christ was fully man until the Holy Spirit descended on him and he became fully divine. And there are other versions that teach that Christ's divinity fully absorbed his humanity. But the overarching message here is that if you are a monophysite, Christ has one nature, and that's it. Just the one. Just one. One and only one. It's like Sunday, 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 and no day but Sunday, but now it's just one, 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 nothing else. 
Nope, nothing, not even a little speck. It's the dollar store of, I don't know, theology. Like, you walk in, everything's a dollar. You grab this divinity, it's a dollar. You grab this human, it's a dollar. Perfect. So we have nesting dolls, we have the people who say no, and we have the dollar store. Now let's make that more complicated, because now we have to talk about myophysitism, which is based on the doctrine of Cyril of Alexandria, where it's somewhere between monophysitism and the hypostatic union of two natures. So it teaches that Christ had one nature, but that that nature was a nature of two natures unified in some kind of compound as, quote, one nature of the word and God incarnate. So that's more like when you go to something you think is a dollar store, but it really isn't. Like the dollar stores that sell things for a dollar twenty-five, and you're like, what? Yeah, or like the one five-dollar thing, and you're like, I thought this was a dollar store. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the pseudo dollar store, and and it's really hard to pin down. So that's kind of perfect because it's essentially like one nature that has two characters to it. And to be clear, just for the record. Myophysitism wasn't exactly what Cyril had in mind when he'd written his doctrine. He'd been writing against Nestorius when he was writing. What he was trying to do is really denounce this idea of two separate persons. And so he wrote this thing about how, no, it's it's God and human, but it's just one nature. He was trying to kind of overcome that idea. And then people took his work and interpreted into this myophysitism movement. So... We have the dollar store and the pseudo dollar store. And finally, and I don't know how we're going to make this one a metaphor, (laughs) the hypostatic union was the viewpoint of a fully human and fully divine Christ, where the two natures existed as whole and perfect together in one hypostatic union or individual existence, but that the natures within that individual existence were distinct without confusion or separation. So, I don't know. (laughs) That one doesn't really have good symbolism, unless it was something like frozen yogurt that is low-fat but also delicious, so you get the best of both worlds. (laughs) I don't know. Or like a, I don't know, like a Walmart super center with like both the grocery store and the regular store, so you never actually have to leave. There you go. So the hypostatic union is the deluxe Walmart, (laughs) and the deluxe Walmart is the Western understanding of Christ going all the way back to Hippolytus, so maybe that's perfect, because in the West, they definitely love their deluxe super Walmarts. Now that we've been through so many metaphors, we're going to see how this all plays out, because we know that these arguments are generally all alive and well, and this issue had in no way been settled at the point of the mid-5th century. You know, some of these views have been condemned, but that doesn't keep them from spreading or having people ask questions or try to absorb them into their own teachings. So this is a thing that is still happening. And the whole of the Christological debate comes right to a head in 448, when an abbot from Constantinople called Eutyches, who was deposed from his position by the Bishop Flavian, for teaching extremely monophysite theology. We talked about this in Leo's episode, but Eutyches was convinced that he was in the right and shouldn't have been deposed, and so he appeals to Pope Leo for reinstatement. 
Leo investigates with the Bishop Flavian for a full account of the situation, and Leo very easily concludes that the deposition was correct and that Eutyches' teachings were definitely not. The letter that Leo sent in response to Flavian is the famous Epistle 28, known as the Tome of Leo, which lays out the official church doctrine on Christology. You know, it describes that Christ's nature is in the view of the hypostatic union deluxe Walmart. So, two whole and perfect natures without confusion or separation, unified into one existence. So this is the big foundational text that we're going to revisit quite a bit in this episode. However, despite Flavian being vindicated as having correctly deposed Eutyches, the unexpected interference of the emperor was going to make things more complicated. Now, you see, Eutyches had a godson called Chrysaphius the eunuch. That's what he's known as, more eunuchs. Why do they just keep chopping off or disconnecting? I don't know what they do. Part of this is he was serving as a very powerful church official in the court of Eastern Emperor Theodosius II. And often when you have very strong and very influential advisors within an imperial court, they are eunuchs because then they don't have this whole, you know, my progeny would do better at this thing. So that happened. So he's serving in a very, very influential and very powerful role in Theodosius's court. And somehow, Chrysaphius is able to influence Theodosius with accounts of Eutyches being wronged and that the Pope was acting like a Nestorian, and he convinces the emperor to get involved. And this whole time, Chrysaphius had been trying to get Eutyches to be the next bishop of Constantinople anyways, because it would really benefit him. So by the time this is all happening and he's regaling the emperor with these stories about his godfather being so wronged, he's been undermining Flavian for years anyways. Chrysaphius, by the way, would go on to have a huge role in politics and be in a major power struggle when the emperor died. So, like, this is a man who is very much involved at this point. So anyways, Emperor Theodosius ordered a council to be called in Ephesus post-haste and appointed Dioscorus, the Bishop of Alexandria, who happened to be one of Eutyches' major supporters, to preside over this council. This is not the Council of Chalcedon, to be clear, but we have to deal with it first. It was called so quickly that only one Western bishop, Julian of Petoliae, was able to attend. So the council was packed with Monophysite Eastern bishops who were all supporters of Eutyches. Pope Leo sent four legates to represent him at the council, along with an annoyed letter that passive-aggressively apologized that the, you know, the short notice of the council prevented the other Western bishops from being able to come. So he's like, hey, I see what you're doing, and I'm going to be passive-aggressive about it. And even though he sent four legates in his stead, one of them died on the way there, so things are not off to a great start. And they weren't about to get any better, because when Dioscorus opens the council, he bars any bishop who had participated in the deposition of Eutyches. And just absolutely, oh, oh, you had something to do with accusing Eutyches of being a monophysite? You can't come to this council. You cannot sit with us. So that means that the whole council was basically the Eutyches show. You know, he got to speak in his own defense with an end result of an overwhelming vote to reinstate him. Like, 
111 bishops out of 130 who were present voted to reinstate him and to depose both Flavian from his bishopric in Constantinople, as well as Eusebius of Dorylaeum, who had been Eutyches' first accuser. Both Flavian and the papal legates repeatedly called for the reading of the Tome of Leo during this council, but they were suppressed and ignored, and when Flavian put up a resistance to the decree of his deposition, he was beaten by a mob so badly that he died three days later. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not a good time to be Flavian. Mm-mm. The papal legates were appalled and declared loudly the word contradictor to annul the council in the Pope's name before they had to flee for their own life before they caught a similar fate to Flavian. And as we covered in Leo's episode, he was furious when he was brought news of this council and loudly and publicly repudiated and nullified the decrees of the council dubbing the council the Latrocinium, which is the robber synod, which is what we know it as today. He petitioned the emperor repeatedly for a new legitimate council to be called, but Theodosius just refused to call one. Here again, we can assume the influence of Chrysaphius, who was probably quite happy at the moment that things had gone so according to his plan. But the struggle doesn't go on for very long, because Emperor Theodosius died less than a year later, and was replaced by Marcion, a military general who married the emperor's sister to cement power. And because the robber synod had been so intensely divisive for the church, and that Leo still was refusing to relent on the issue, Marcion readily agreed to call a new council to officially repudiate the robber synod. And that brings us to the council we're actually here to talk about, which is the Council of Chalcedon. So the council, surprise, was held in Chalcedon, (laughs) which at the time was a region just outside of Constantinople in what is modern-day Katakoi in Turkey. Pope Leo had pushed for the council to be held in Rome, or at least somewhere in Italy, because that would have been a very physical way to cement his development of papal primacy. But Marcion required the council to be closer to Constantinople, because this allowed him to be closer to dispatch a military response to all of those threats on the border, like Attila the Hun. Mm -hmm. So the Pope went, okay, that's fair. It ran from October 8th to November 1st of 451, and was the largest attended of the first ecumenical councils of the church. Like, huge, huge attendance. Between 520 and 630 bishops attended, depending on whose count you go by, which, regardless of whose count you go by, is twice as many bishops as were at Nicaea. Even the majority of the later councils will not have nearly as many attendees as Chalcedon, so unlike this robber synod, bishops were given lots and lots of time to get where they were going. That being said, we don't see as much of a geographical spread of bishops like we did at Nicaea, so there's isn't like a whole empire-wide attendance, but there's still quite a lot of provinces represented. Bishops came from Italy, Africa, Egypt, Pontus, Asia, Thrace, Dacia, and Macedonia. This is also the best documented of the first seven ecumenical councils, so we really don't have to do a lot of speculation here. The records are very, very clear, which is very, very nice. 
Good for you. Good for me. So good for me. So let's take a quick look at the key players who attended. We know Pope Leo didn't personally attend, despite being asked to preside over the council by Marcion, because he wanted to follow with tradition and sent legates to represent him. He sent four. So there's two bishops, Pacasinus of Lilibium and Julian of Kos, and two priests called Boniface and Basil. Or Basil. 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 And with these legates, he sent a letter to Marcion, indicating that Pacasinus was to be the first of these legates, and that he should be the one to preside over the council. And when Pacasinus arrives, he proclaims to the attending council that he would preside in the name of, and as the voice of Leo, so that there was no confusion about the Pope's direct involvement or his position as the head of the church. Very, very important. We know how much this matters to Leo. The emperor also personally attended various sessions. So he was actually there witnessing that. Now, beyond the legates and the emperor, we also have Dioscorus of Alexandria in attendance, who is the man who presided over the robber synod, as well as some of the larger figures of the Eastern Church, like Anatolius of Constantinople, Thalassius of Caesarea, Stephen of Ephesus, Quintilus of Heraclea, Peter of Corinth, Maximus of Antioch, and Juvenal of Jerusalem. So all of the major episcopates are being represented. There are also a handful of civil commissioners present, appointed by the emperor, but they were there only to perform the tasks of opening and closing the council sessions, directing the agenda, and ensuring that the council stayed on task, so they don't have an active participation role. But it was really important to keep the council on task here, because the goals of this council were going to be fairly weighty, to say the least. Not only was this going to be about dealing with the depositions and the problematic decrees of the robber synod, it is going to be a moment in time where Orthodox Catholic doctrine is going to be determined, and because of the ongoing administrative tensions, it would also be an opportunity to stabilize the institution of the church, and while they were at it, a bunch of discipline and jurisdiction issues of various dioceses and episcopates, because... That's what you do when you get together to solve a big issue. So, council proceedings. According to Rusticus the Deacon... That's a great name. Rusticus? Ah, oh, I love it. I think we've had a couple Rusticus, and every time you say you like that name. I love it. I would never name a child that, but, like, get me, like, a fat rat, and <laughs> I would definitely name it Rusticus. Yeah, that's fair. It's a good pet name. I love giving animals historical names clearly. I've noticed. So, according to Rusticus, the deacon, the council opened on October 8th in the Church of St. Euphemia and would run for 16 sessions. The first act of the session was that the emperor, Marcion, ordered that Flavian's body would be brought back to Constantinople for a burial with honors, and to return any bishops that had been deposed by Dioscorus back who currently weren't at the council. He was just wherever he got punched to death, right, Flavian? They just kind of left him there in Ephesus. So now he's coming back to Constantinople to be buried, and anyone that Dioscorus deposed during that council, whether they're at this council to hear it or not, are allowed to go back to their bishopric. Pacasinus also refused to give Dioscorus a seat at the council right from the get-go, so there are reports that he had to sit in the nave of the church to be present, 
away from the main discussions. So this you can't sit with us has been turned against him. So right after those things, which were the most important to the emperor, the council wanted to get this main dogmatic issue off the table, so they immediately worked to address the questions of Christology. The emperor requested that the council make an official pronouncement on the incarnation and just get it out of the way. So the first things that were read in this Christology discussion were the acts that were produced by the robber synod so that they could be formally condemned. And interestingly enough, the fact that they read and recorded the acts of the robber synod are the only reason that those ones are preserved to history. They were recorded here and preserved, but the original records from the actual robber synod don't survive. So if they had not read them out in detail to condemn them, we would not know what they said. After this, the council read the letters of Cyril, initially written to condemn Nestorianism. These are the 12 anathemas. We mentioned earlier that Cyril's teachings were on the foundation of a new view called Miaphysitism, which argued for two natures of Christ having been unified into a single nature. And again, this is not precisely what Cyril had been arguing for in his original doctrine. In his actual writing, Cyril acknowledged that the two natures of Christ as both being present, but it was his framing of these natures as unified that started this problem. So the members of the council who heard the pronouncement of Cyril's letters did not take his doctrine this miaphysitic way and are documented to have responded to the reading of his letters with, quote, We all so believe, Pope Leo thus believes, we all thus believe, and Cyril so believe we, all of us, eternal be the memory of Cyril, as the epistles of Cyril teach, such is our mind, such has been our faith, such is our faith, such is the mind of Archbishop Leo, so he believes, so he has written. This is apparently what they yelled unanimously when... His letters were read. What a mouthful. I don't know how they got it all out. Right? And it's so circular. And it's not the only one like that. But why was the reading of the letters of Cyril important? And why did they need to confirm them when clearly a huge part of this council was going to come down to that Tome of Leo? Well, it turns out that mainly because the focus was going to be the Tome of Leo, that the letters of Cyril were necessary because there was some concern that some of the writing in the Tome of Leo was somewhat vague at best, and maybe a little too close to Nestorianism at worst. So some people had a couple concerns about what Pope Leo had written. And it's understandable if we consider that Leo wrote the Tome specifically to come against Eutyches and his very extreme Monophysite ideology, that he probably would have lent pretty hard on the whole to nature's aspect. So essentially, the letters of Cyril and the Tome of Leo presented a complementary opposite to one another. One was a little too one nature, and one was a little too two natures. And so the council asserted that if the doctrine of Cyril and the doctrine of the Tome of Leo could be compatible with one another, then they could be used to represent a full dimensional understanding of this idea of the two distinct natures in one person. If we can reconcile these two together to mean the same thing, then we have exactly what we want. So trying to reconcile these two pieces of doctrine 
was a task given to a special committee within the council who went over the Tome of Leo in the greatest of depth with a fine-tooth comb for a full five days before they came to the unanimous agreement that the Tome of Leo and the Letters of Cyril were entirely compatible and any question or debate brought against the wording of the Tome could be defended with the writings of Cyril and vice versa. Therefore, they had their orthodoxy. So at this point, now that they've decided, yep, these two actually work together, we've read the letters of Cyril out loud, they have been recorded, and now they read the Tome of Leo in full and received the recorded response of the bishops. And I quote, This is the faith of the fathers. This is the faith of the apostles. So we all believe, thus the orthodox believe. Anathema to him who does not thus believe. Peter has spoken thus through Leo. So taught the apostles. Piously and truly did Leo teach. So taught Cyril. Everlasting be the memory of Cyril. Leo and Cyril taught the same thing. Anathema to him who does not so believe. This is the true faith. Those of us that are orthodox thus believe. This is the faith of the fathers. Why were these things not read at Ephesus? These are the things Dioscorus hid away. <laughs> Why weren't these read? <laughs> these are the things. This is the thing. This is the thing. This is the thing. And if you weren't sure, this is also the thing. And if you don't believe that this is the thing, well, then you're anathema because this is the thing. It's so circular. And those are quoted word for word. So although this is a pretty unanimous profession of assent from the bishops, when it came time to sign their names to the Tome of Leo as orthodoxy, 13 Egyptian bishops refused to sign, citing that they would remain steadfast to, quote, the traditional faith. So everybody agrees that, yep, this is, this is the text we're going to go with. Yep, mm-hmm. And then it comes time to sign it, and these 13 Egyptian bishops go, mm, no, we can't do that. We have to stick to the traditional faith. So everyone's going, mm, what? But this seems to come down to an inconvenient custom where the Egyptian bishops were not to accept any decree until it had been approved by the Egyptian archbishop, which they currently didn't have at the time, and they required one to be appointed before they could actually assent to sign this document. So that's a little insight into the Episcopates of Egypt, that they have their own little customs that holds this whole thing up. And this gets handled in an act that we'll mention in a little bit, but this holdup does lead the emperor to decide that beyond the tome of Leo, the church should also issue a credo, statement of belief, that ensured that their decision to accept the tome of Leo as doctrine was clear and prevented the council from having to like reconvene and debate this at a later time if something is unclear. So they go, okay, fair enough. So. They draft a confession of faith to clearly articulate the exact Christological orthodoxy, just in case these questions ever arose again against the Tome of Leo. They had a document that said basically the same thing, but in different words. And this is called the Chalcedonian Definition. And because I, I always make you read the Creed of Nicaea, I'm going to make you read this too. Ooh, of course you are. I talk so much, so I got to give you some airtime. I know, and I didn't have a lot to interject in all this theology. Mm-hmm. So, with that, you can read us the Chalcedonian definition. Wow, it's just the definition. 
Mm, cool. You know, okay, I'm looking at this and, like, there's so many just capitalized letters. It's like a teenage boy writing his first, like, fantasy novel. Yep. It's it's a mess. There's no reason for this many. It's They're all the holy words. Yeah. Mostly. It looks a mess. Yep. Following then, the Holy Fathers, we all unanimously teach that our Lord Jesus Christ is to us one and the same Son, the selfsame perfect in Godhead, the selfsame perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the selfsame of a rational soul and body, coessential with the Father according to the Godhead, the selfsame coessential with us according to the manhood. Like us in all things, sin apart, before the ages begotten of the Father as to the Godhead, but in the last days the selfsame, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Theotokos, as to the manhood. Don't forget about the manhood. <laughs> <laughs> One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved, and both concurring into one person in one hypostasis, not as though he were parted or divided into two persons, but one in the selfsame Son and only begotten God, Word, Lord, Jesus Christ, even as from the beginning the prophets have taught concerning him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ himself hath taught us, and as the symbol of our fathers hath handed down to us. So that's a mouthful. Yeah, they said the manhood so many times. And remember, this is their statement to clarify what they thought was vague. None of this clarifies anything. Yeah, but that's what they're going to go with. They think it's fantastic. Oh, I bet. They're like, this totally settles this debate. And with a sigh of relief, they go, oh, that big, large part of the council, we can check that box because we won't have any problems with that ever in the future ever again. No, unconfusedly, it says there, the manhood, <laughs> unconfusedly, both natures. Yep, so that is the Chalcedonian definition, and they are very, very proud of it. And they go, okay, job done. Now we can move on to the other thing. And the next thing that they get on to right away is holding a trial for Dioscorus of Alexandria, who had presided over the robber synod. Dioscorus, who had been denied a seat at the council, you know, had to sit in the nave while they had all these discussions, decided that this was the moment he was going to refuse to appear before the council for his trial. And so was convicted in absentia for the, quote, malicious suppression of Pope Leo's letters at that council. So he was deposed from his bishopric, and all of his decrees were nullified, and he was excommunicated. Job two done. I guess. How many more jobs did they have? Well, a little bit here, because beyond the major Christological debate, the council also came together to address and make regulations for aspects of the ecclesiastical discipline. and jurisdiction, and marriage, and monasticism, and due process, and this resulted in the passage of 30 canons. And we're not going to go over all of them in detail, because some of them are really, like, not relevant and very, very dry, but I'm going to give you a general summary so that we can be thorough. 
The due process canons decree on things like the observation of canons from previous synods, when synods should be called and attended, how synodal canons should be observed while traveling between different places, and one specific canon, 30, declares that the Egyptian bishops who had attended the council should not be blamed for not immediately accepting the Tome of Leo, like we had mentioned before. Those are the due process ones. There are 10 canons that are concerned with the conduct of clergymen, so there is a prohibition on buying and selling ordinations or brokering a sale or ordinations within martyries or monasteries, and any clergyman within a monastery was expected to present himself to the authority of the city bishops. There are also prescribed punishments for clerics who raise cases in secular courts, or for anyone who seizes the goods of a bishop who has died, and for clerics who conspire against bishops. There are also preventions for rash charges made against bishops by clergymen, and for clergymen who spend too much time in Constantinople when their bishop desires them to actually come back. And finally, there is also one that dictates that a bishop should not be demoted to presbyterial rank, because if he has committed a wrongdoing worthy of a demotion, then he is unworthy of the priesthood full stop and should be deposed in full. So if you are a bishop and you mess up, you cannot be demoted. It is in or it is out. Monks or nuns are not allowed to marry. Clergymen should not elope. A woman could not be made a deaconess until she was 40. And if after that she married, she would be excommunicated. The only slightly complex one is Canon 14, which deals with the fact that in some regions of the empire, cantors or singers or lectors in the church were allowed to be married and some of them had had children and it's kind of this weird scenario where some members of the church had wives who were not orthodox and so they had to put a canon in place for these weird cases so that it ordered that the children of these marriages must be baptized only into orthodoxy so Makes sense. If you have a heretic wife, your children should join the church and not her heresy. The monastic canons reinforced that no monasteries could be founded without the approval of the local bishops, and that monks were subject to the local bishops, that slaves could not enter the monastic life unless they'd been given permission by their owner, a monk may not leave his monastery without a bishop's permission, and once a monastery is founded, it is to be unmoved and unalienated. And finally, the jurisdictional canons. These are the ones that have a little bit more weight to the things that we're going to be talked about. Canon 10 says that no cleric should be recorded on more than one city's clergy list. He should remain with the church where he was first ordained, rather than going to larger churches for ambition. Makes sense. They want people to stay in their churches and not try to, like, rise through the ranks and end up as, like, the Bishop of Constantinople. But if a cleric has been officially removed from one church into another, then he is to have no jurisdiction or involvement in the affairs of his former church. Makes sense. You are responsible for one church. Your influence is reserved for one church. Canon 20 is similar, decreeing that no bishop officiating in one city can be appointed to the church of another, and if a bishop receives a clergyman who is still under the jurisdiction of another bishop, both the clergyman and the bishop will be excommunicated. Try and keep that power in line. Yeah. Canon 12 decrees that provinces should remain whole 
rather than being divided to increase the number of metropolitan or archbishops within the area, Canon 17 decreed that rural and village parishes, if they had been maintained as subject to their current bishops for over 30 years, they were going to stay the way they are. But if within that 30-year period of being under a bishop, if there's a dispute with the bishop, the parish has the right to appeal in a synod of their province. So if you guys stay under a bishop for 30 years with no problems, then that's the way it's going to stay and the bishop's going to have jurisdiction over you. If you have a problem with him, you can always appeal for a provincial synod. That's a long time. Yeah, it is a very long time. So, I mean, it puts the bishop on trial. Although, if you think about it, that bishop probably changes several times within that 30 years. Yeah, it's almost our entire lives there. It's a weird one, but I think what they're trying to do is limit the bishops from going, I have control over that diocese. It's always been within my power. You have to actually prove that now. Mm -hmm. So there's that. And Canon 28 decrees that the Bishop of Constantinople should be elevated to, quote, second in eminence and power to the Bishop of Rome. A.K.A. this would give him the title of Patriarch of the East, whereas Rome is the Patriarch of the West. Now this canon, Canon 28, requires a bit more look, though, for the major reason that this was the only decree of the entire ecumenical council that Pope Leo would refuse to confirm. Makes sense. He was not willing in any way, shape, or form to allow Constantinople to be elevated to Patriarch, and especially that second only to Rome, because he, like the popes before him, understood that suppressing Constantinople's influence within the church was the only way to maintain Rome's influence as the head of the church. You know, the emperor had moved away from Rome ages ago now. There was quite a lot of significant consequences that we're seeing with the ongoing crumbling of the West, so giving Constantinople elevated authority within the church while it's the strongest and most important city while the emperor lives there would place Rome at far too great a disadvantage, so he is not having that. If the primacy of the apostolic see is to be maintained, this canon has to be refused. And so when Leo confirms the decrees, he eliminates canon 28 in full. He's like, nope, that never existed. It's not on the list. I'm sorry, I don't see it. Mm -mm. And although it's not a canon, it's similar enough to include here because the council also passed a decree on the jurisdiction of Jerusalem and Antioch, which made Jerusalem a patriarchate, which meant that it was no longer under the jurisdiction of the Metropolitan of Antioch and became a major Episcopal see of its own. So that gives us our major patriarchate of the era at this time. Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, now Jerusalem, and if Canon 28 had passed, Constantinople. But not Constantinople, because Leo says no. There are also a couple small matters addressed that aren't too important, but brief mention. The Bishop of Edessa, who had been allegedly deposed on false charges, was also reinstated at this council, and a former Nestorian called Theodoret of Cyrus officially repudiated Nestorianism at the council and gets officially reinstated to the church. And then there was an issue with the bishopric of Ephesus, who had ended up in kind of a pickle when two men were both elevated to be the new bishop at the same time. Like, this is our first anti-bishop situation, so there's that. But neither man had a more legitimate claim over the other, and they didn't really want to fight about it, 
So it was decided that a new person should be elected for the role, but the other two men should receive a pension and should be considered with, quote, Episcopal dignity, because they they did anti-bishop all over the place. They just decided, no, we're not going to fight this. So recapping and wrapping up, the final results of the council are pretty clear to lay out. The definitive orthodox doctrine on the natures of Christ was established by the Chalcedonian definition. Manhood, 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 manhood. Manhood with divinity, though. You know, it's got to have both. <laughs> so, hypostatic union as described by the Tome of Leo. And with the acceptance of this definition, Eutyches and Monophysitism are formally condemned. Bishop Flavian is posthumously vindicated. Dioscorus is condemned, deposed, and excommunicated. And as we see with that, when they were declaring, this is the faith of the fathers, oh my goodness, the Pope is formally recognized as the voice of Peter, both by the legates who stood in his place at the council, but also with the fact that the council ended with the request by said legates that Leo personally confirm the decrees of the council that they assented to sign in his name. And this is a beautiful little trick of due process here, because by requiring the Pope's personal approval of the decrees, even after his legates have signed them, draws a huge distinction on what actually validates the decrees. So, in this way, the decrees of the Council are valid only because they have received Leo's approval. Because of his approval, the canons are valid not because they were unanimously declared by some bishops. So this sets a very strong precedent that definitely could have been useful when we looked at the whole Athanasian period of competing councils in the West and the East, condemning and excommunicating each other. That council doesn't count. Yeah, our council's more legitimate. <laughs> now none of that matters, because unless the Pope assents to sign your actual decrees, your council's invalid. And he made a very strong point of that, especially when he didn't sign Canon 28, because he's like, I agree with all of this. Nope, not that one. It's not there. It doesn't exist. Very, very smart little trick of due process. So to conclude this episode, we need to just have a look at the legacy of this moment for the church. This is one of the church's most formative councils. It sets out a foundational Christological doctrine and just as importantly, it sets the benchmark for the recognition of the Pope as the voice of Peter and as the head of the whole church. So it's the Pope who set the orthodoxy. It's the Pope whose confirmation makes the decrees in the council valid. It is a concrete extension of authority and even some influence in the East. So it's a big, big deal of a council, but it's also extremely controversial. You know, even though we look at it and we go, this is a big moment, this formed major things for the church, the immediate reaction to the council looks a lot less formative, because the decrees of the council are going to be followed with major schism. Dang, I thought we were doing good. Yeah, I mean, they had a unanimous acceptance of the Chalcedonian definition, but reality's like, no, it didn't really work that way, so... Monophysitism doesn't go away quietly, and neither does Miaphysitism, so they don't feel that they're fully and totally represented or vindicated by hypostatic union definition, so they kind of are there in between the Monophysites and the Orthodox. And this is what transpires most keenly in Alexandria, 
which experiences the most significant schism for the moment. There are those who accept Chalcedon, and those who broke away to become the theological leaders of Miaphysitism and Monophysitism in the East. The church that comes out of this break, by the way, will become known as the Coptic Orthodox Church. So this is where we start to see this emerge as a separate identity. Mm -hmm. And this is something we talked about with Jonathan Adley from the History of the Copts when he came on to talk about Athanasius. And if you want to know more about what happens to that branch of the church, check out his show, History of the Copts, because he has a lot on this. So on that point, as a point of reference, Coptic Christians sometimes call the Council of Chalcedon Chalcedon the Ominous. Ooh. Yeah, because after this moment, the Coptic Church will be faced with intense persecution due to their rejection of the decrees of Chalcedon. And this will be going on, like, well through the next hundred years up to the time of Emperor Justinian and beyond. So this is not good for the Coptic Church. It creates the Coptic Church, but they're going to have a bad time of it. And the Copts are not the only ones to reject the decrees of Chalcedon. It also is rejected by the remaining, quote-unquote, I hate using this word, but Oriental Orthodox Church, which is, you know, the Syriac, Ethiopian, Etretia, Indian, and Armenian Church, and the Assyrian Church. So, this is not universally accepted by any means. And how this is all going to play out is what we're going to see in our next couple episodes. So I'm just going to leave it there with Chalcedon the Ominous. So spooky. Our next couple popes are not going to have a good time after this council, even though it sounds like things are so good and everyone's unanimous and we agree and all the issues got solved well. Oh, they had no idea what was coming for them. And on that note, since this is a bonus episode, we're just going to carry on and say thank you and goodbye. Oh, bye. Bye!